Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry skies, see your hand in time, and mine to lead me through the night. I want you to notice with me 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We've used this passage the last couple of weeks. We'll use it today. We'll use it next week. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride. And love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious. But they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They will act religious, the Bible says. The same people listed in those previous verses. People who love only themselves and their money in the last days, will act religious. People who consider nothing sacred might very well attend worship services. People unloving and unforgiving could also return tithe. Those who slander and are cruel might also talk about faith. Those puffed up with pride would speak of Ezekiel or Isaiah or Sarah or Mary or Paul. The dangerous disconnect between acting religious and being godly is this. They reject the power that could make them godly. Obviously, following Jesus is more than acting religious. It's a lifetime pursuit of being transformed into godliness. And for any human being, let's face it, that's a vast undertaking. Rather than rejecting this power, what can we do to release God-transforming power? How can we be conduits of that power? How can we allow that to flow in our lives? Of particular concern today, I want you to notice verses 8 and 9. Those who resist the power that could make them godly. Verse number 8 in the same chapter says, These teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. These things aren't new to Paul. They're not new to the New Testament. Janus and Jambres were of the Old Testament. Even in all those times of Scripture, there were depraved minds and counterfeit faith. And then look at verse 9. But they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize what fools they are. Just as with Janus 
and Jambres. Someday, folks hear me, truth is revealed over time. Time is on the side of truth. Depraved minds, unreverted minds, unconverted minds rather, untransformed minds, these are losing propositions and they're destined for failure. None of us can maintain corrupt human ordinary thinking and minds and cultural thought processes and expect success. Playing for truth's opposing team ultimately produces failure every time. Wrong thinking leads to wrong choices and wrong choices will come to light always. Over the past 30 and more years, I've ministered to many people in many places. And though time has passed and distances have changed, people still reach out to me and my wife occasionally. Just a couple days ago, a suffering person outside of this congregation wanted some help, changing a failing destination that's finally being realized. I am absolutely saddened. And yet in my mind, I cannot help but think it didn't have to be this way. How could you expect any different? That in the course of caring people and caring services and a caring God and powerful word, when hands were waved about decisions... Those warnings were rebuffed. When warnings were cast about direction, those warnings ignored. And now the destination is revealed. All of a sudden, now we're interested in God's deliverance. I want you to understand me, and we're going to pray in a minute. Untransformed minds make unreformed decisions. And in the kingdom of God, those decisions fail every time. Paul said it this way, they won't get away with it for long. Now we're going to pray right now for revelation. We're going to pray for opened eyes and changed minds. Pray for yourself. Pray for someone you love. I want you right now to pray in the Holy Ghost. Lord Jesus, God, I pray right now through the power of your divine spirit, the authority, Lord, of your holy word. 
for open eyes and revelation and understanding in this house today. I, I pray, God, that you would speak to us as only you are able to do. Let your word be very clear today, Lord. I, I come against anything that would confuse or deceive or derail. I, I pray, God, for spiritual and word clarity today, Lord. I, I pray, God, that you would minister in my life, that you would grab my attention, Lord, that you would get a hold of my understanding today, Lord. I, I pray that your word would be as clear as it has ever been, Lord. Not just today, but in the days ahead. Let your word and your revelation come forward today, Lord Jesus. Move and minister by the power of your word today. And you say, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You may be seated. I want to make it very clear and very direct in the short amount of time that I have that the Bible offers a clear alternative to what I have just shared. Paul directed Timothy to this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. In the very same passage, the scripture says this. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. They have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Right here. Scripture. The Word. It's through this powerful book that we have an amazing advantage even over those in biblical times. Old Testament believers didn't have this written plan and purpose of God in their hands. In the New Testament, believers didn't have the written word of God in their homes and in their tents and in the backpacks on their camels. Yes, there were scrolls. Yes, there were scriptures, but only a few possessed them. And they had to get together in a body like this to hear the word expounded. But you and I, on our devices and in our hands, we have the authority of a divine creator that is at our fingertips. It's right here in our possession. Primarily important in this word is salvation. Salvation. Scriptures give us the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. It's right here in the Bible that explains every human's need for salvation. It explains human failures that can only be eternally repaired by an eternal God and a blood-bought Savior. Amen. The Word of God defines salvation. It exactly defines what salvation is. This book doesn't just declare that we need it doesn't just declare that it's available, but it invites us to enjoy it. The book inspires us to receive deliverance from our sin and deliverance from our faults and mistakes and deliverance from the very nature that defaults to error. 
I would have you to hear in the sound of my voice today. In today's sea of individual thoughts, the Holy Bible definitively reveals salvation. Preacher, I got a friend who says. Preacher, I got an aunt who says. Preacher, my co-worker suggests. Preacher, I got a neighbor who says. Preacher, for generations in my family, I hear you. I appreciate what you're saying. But at the end of the day, when the Lord returns, he's not going to ask what our aunt had to say. He's not going to ask what our neighbor had to say. He's not interested in what our co-workers develop. Right here, by his holy word, salvation is described and explained and defined. And if I were to believe from some other source, I am putting my soul in danger of hell. Salvation is only a word because of this book. It comes through Jesus Christ. We can never earn it. Can't purchase it. It was paid in full by his shed blood. Salvation has never been and will never be through any other human. It is solely through Jesus Christ. Preacher, why choose the Bible over any other book or, or Jesus above any other teacher or historical figure? I, I won't take time today to defend this book as the holy book that it is. But let me just say this. We choose the Word and this Savior because they are Proven, and they are faithful teachings over centuries across all continents, across all aspects of humanity. This word, this Savior have proven faithful time in and time out. Yes, people can and do fail God, but that's not on him. He never fails. He never gives up. He never is gone in that path. We are surrendered to his word and the Savior. He's there. Holy Scriptures have given us the wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. And as amazing... As amazing, and we wrap our minds around that. A creator so interested in individuals that he maps a plan, communicates the plan, and facilitates the plan and makes it happen for you and I. As amazing and powerful and purposeful as that is, Scripture provides even more. This is more than a book of deliverance. This book is about becoming. This book is about transformation. In verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture, all of it, is inspired by God. I love the translations that try to help us fuller understand. It's God breathed. 
All Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God breathes Scripture, teaches and reveals and corrects and trains. God breathes Scripture, releases God transforming power in our lives. Just hear me in this simple statement. Scripture is practical. It's readily available. And it is a God conductor for all who would follow Jesus Christ right here opens up the power of God in our lives. Scripture is a God conductor. In the Old Testament, after the Lord God delivered the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, they eventually entered into Canaan, the promised land. And all of that happened under the leadership, the transition from uh, the, the wilderness into the promised land happened under Joshua. And Joshua then is about to die. And at the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 23, he's given some following charges to those people. Here's what he wrote. It's what he said, and here's what's recorded. So be very careful to follow Everything Moses wrote in the book of instruction. Do not deviate from it, turning either to the right or to the left. Make sure you do not associate with the other people still remaining in the land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God as you have done until now. In the next chapter, in verse 14, it goes forward. So fear the Lord, serve him wholeheartedly, put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in the land who now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. The statement's pretty clear. Will you serve the old gods? Will you serve the new gods? Or will you serve the one God? Everybody makes a choice. Now look what it says in verse 16. The people replied, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. Joshua warned the people in verse 20. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he'll turn against you and destroy you and even though he has been so good to you. Verse 21, but the people answered Joshua, no, 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 no. We will serve the Lord. Their words were clear. Let's read about their actions. In the book of Judges, transition has happened. Here's what the Bible says in chapter 2 and verse 7. 
And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him. Those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Verse number 10, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. And look at verse 11. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. I find it very interesting that now the land of Canaan looks exactly the same as it did when the children of Israel arrived. The children of Israel were supposed to bring the God of heaven and earth, the creator, to this heathen land. And instead, they abandoned what they brought. Now it looks exactly the same as when they walked across the river into that new land. No change. Somewhere along the line, Israel's direction changed. And the changed direction was a result of their changed decisions. Would you hear me just for a few more moments this morning? Their decisions changed when their minds stopped thinking about the Lord and the great things that he had done. Everything was okay among them as long as there were people who knew the Lord and they knew the mighty things that he had done. But when the recorded actions and words of God, when the memories of God and the vocabulary of God, the works of God disappeared from their lives, they then disappeared from their minds and then things rapidly reverted to the pre-God time. Their God mentality didn't vanish overnight. It never does. After they escaped slavery, they moved into a new land. They conquered their biggest enemies in the biggest cities, their biggest fears. But then things quieted down. Israel's problems were smaller now. Their enemies were fewer now. The threat wasn't nearby. They were scattered and off somewhere in the wilderness, in the distance, and in the hillside. The threat didn't feel immediate. If you will, some would think, well, there's a few annoying stragglers, but they're out there. So while a few families continued under God's direction, the Bible records that most families in Israel quit moving forward. 
And in the first chapters of Judges, we discover Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or Sidon. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. So rather than continue, most of them found some more time to relax. I mean, come on, folks. I've been living in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, making bricks and gathering uh, straw and trying to build for the Egyptians. And then we got confused under some faulty spying. And then we had to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness, picking up and packing up and moving on and going in circles. And then we got into this Canaan land and we got in these big old battles and we fought together and we helped one another and, and we wiped out the major stuff. But come on now sit down and have a glass of iced tea isn't it about time we've run them off into the hills there's just a few scattered things remaining and a few troubles here and there chill out will you Joshua chill out old folks calm down we need to settle down a little bit and rest a little bit I got me a new house and I got me some new animals and I got me some new farmland and it's time to move on and and do some other things see they didn't see God as anything more than a deliverer he just gets me out of trouble now the trouble's gone I can't see him in any other role. Their limited view of God helped them to lose their value for God. If I believe he's only a deliverer, then I don't value him when things are good. So they stopped talking about his ways. They quit speaking about his works. And God's word was devalued and then unattended to. And once unattended to, God's word became unrehearsed. And when it was unrehearsed, it was abandoned and finally forgotten. And once they'd forgotten up here, the book of instruction, then their unchanged minds produced unchanged ways. And pretty soon they were living exactly the same as the Canaanites they had conquered, worshiping the same gods that they weren't even supposed to mention their name, and living the same way as the people they were trying to overcome. But God's purpose, God's purpose is so much more than delivering us from enemies and problems. His way is more than just moving us into a new location with less trouble. Here are the merely elements of the journey. Yes, God delivers. Yes, God moves us into new places. But those are just steps in the process. God's purpose is that we become His people. His way, His purpose is transformation. Transformation. Romans chapter 12, God's purpose sounds like this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. Hmm. 
Paul wasn't just making a suggestion. He made a heartfelt plea. I plead with you. Give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them, our bodies, let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person. By changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let God transform you. Allow it. Permit it. Listen, God's divine authority delivers from the enemy. God's miraculous power heals people beyond a doctor's explanation. God's amazing power created the heavens and the earth. One-time actions of a divine authority. But God's amazing grace then provides salvation that you and I can freely receive. I, I can't earn salvation. I can't buy salvation. I can't deserve salvation. But I can receive what he's provided. Follow me here. So his divine acts are his authority in creation. Our salvation is received by his grace to us. But transformation is not a one-time divine act of God. Transformation doesn't come when I simply pursue and allow the grace of God to give me salvation. When I receive of his salvation, I, I ask forgiveness of my faulty ways and I turn my direction deciding to follow him. When I'm buried with him in baptism, my faults washed away. When I receive the infilling of his spirit, I, I've just begun the journey. All of those things I can't earn, I can't do, I can't have a part in those other than to willingly receive them. But transformation's another deal. And so Paul says, let, allow, give him permission. Why would we do that? Paul says, let God transform you. How does that happen? By changing the way that we think. Transformed lives follow transformed minds. And transformed minds follow this book. 2 Timothy 3.16, I'll read it again. Follow along all scripture 
is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. Transformed lives follow transformed minds. Transformed minds follow the Scripture. Allowing God to transform means this. I'm allowing this into here. I'm making way for this. I'm reading this. I'm going through this. I'm hearing this. I'm discussing his ways and his works. I'm I'm keeping this part of my vocabulary and part of my thought process, part of my understanding. I'm allowing this. Can I, I just be a pastor for a few moments today? In what ways are we allowing scripture into our minds? You're here in the house today. You've made the right choice. You seem to be paying attention to me. You're allowing scripture into your minds right now. I don't belittle that. I'm appreciative of that. You are doing the right thing. But let me be a pastor a little bit today. If you're doing that right now for this 35 minutes or so, but you won't do it again until you're here next time, let me, let me just provoke you. It needs to be more than that. Hearing his ways. Reading, knowing, allowing. How often am I allowing His words into my mind and spirit? What priority do I give the Word of God in my life? It's interesting to me, I'll talk about this in a minute, but people who who find salvation and then expect to continue on feeding their minds with the same things they've been feeding on before they ever found Christ. And then wonder why they continue to make one lousy decision after another. Because we're not allowing our lives to be transformed by our thoughts. And look around a church house and see people that have faithfully followed Christ for decades and been pouring this word into their lives. They've read the Bible so many. My father-in-law, he used to read the Bible through, I don't know how many times a year when he got up in years. And he would put a mark by every chapter as he had read it. And you open up his Bible... There were hash marks all across the top of the chapter mark and down the side of the chapter mark. And here he is in his elderly years sitting at home, not much else to do. You'd think that would be a time where, you know what, I got my time in with the word. But not James Adkins. James Adkins was in that word. Because more than the other stuff he liked to read, more than the other stuff he liked to listen to, more than the other stuff he liked to watch, well, James knew this. That right there is what's taking me to glory. That right there is what's making the rest of my life go. How often, how much, what priority are we given? You know, let me just be a little bit more open here. After I've exposed my mind to his word, after I've listened to it, after I've read it, after I've received it, after I've been in conversation with it, what do I do then with these God-breathed words? 
How do I allow it to be revealed? How do I allow it to be processed? How am I considering it? How am I meditating on it? How am I thinking about it? How many of you have something happen at work one day? When you get home, whatever that thing is, it just keeps getting over and over in your mind. How many of you, three days later, it keeps coming up and you're like, man, anybody? It's funny how it gets stuck like in this loop. And we revisit what I said. We revisit what they said. We revisit who was responsible, who should have done, right? Can I get a witness? Yeah, you all with me now, aren't you? How do we allow the word of God to do that? So the word that is eternal, that's transformative. Preacher, I've been serving God a long time. Listen to me. Regardless of how long we've been serving him, we live in an environment that does not. We live in an environment whose messages are not at all close to the word of God. Well, I come to the Lord five years ago, preacher, and I've been serving him. Listen, who taught you the years prior to that? There is residue of that. When the children of Israel got to, out of Egypt, they crossed the wilderness and they get to Canaan land. You know why they didn't go in, right? Because they thought they would be defeated. Because they still had a slavery mentality. It was their thinking. Come on, the same is true for you and I. We bring humanity with us into Christianity. And while I love my family, you know what? There are some things in my family that didn't operate according to the things of God. But over time, we've got to allow the word to whittle those out and work on those. Well, my culture, preacher, that's the way we are. Listen, I appreciate that. I value that. I'm not telling you to deny your culture. But is it possible that your culture doesn't think this way? Is that possible? And if so, then i got to choose this above my culture. i, I got to choose this above my habits. i, I got to choose this above my history because this is the book that's able to change my mind. And when it changes my mind, it will change my actions to become a new creature. Here's the bottom line, though. Once we allow it to marinate, once we allow it to meditate, when I'm making room and I'm making time, I'm not just reading the scripture. Maybe I read the same passage three or four times and then I just sit there for 10 minutes thinking about it. And maybe I'm in too big a hurry and I, I've squeezed in those few verses and really not enough time to read them with paying attention in the first place. Any other humans in the house? And though I let scripture into my mind, would you hear me real clear? And though I ponder its meaning, what is God's purpose for that? Becoming a new person. And even though I've let it enter, and even though I've rolled it over, I still haven't become a new person. Those Israelites said to Joshua, We're never turning back. Joshua, you read the passage, he repeatedly said the same thing over to them again and again. I didn't read all of it to you. You'd think it was boring. Why is he repeating himself? He's wanting them to meditate on it. 
He's drilling down. You know what this means, right? Don't go any deviation from the book of instruction. We got it. We're not going nowhere. Don't even say the names of those other gods. Not us. Never happen. Because what's in here and what I'm ruminating doesn't mean I'm acting. Becoming. 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 Transforming. Transformation requires application. It ought to be that when we're in the house of God, we're in the presence of God, we're worshiping God, there ought to be some reflection going on in our lives that says, am I transforming? In what ways am I changing by the hand of God? What God-inspired behaviors am I adding? And what God-condemned behaviors am I deleting? Am I moving forward in the preacher? I can't get them all done at once. God knows that. That's why He gives us His Spirit to help us. But you keep chipping away at the mountain of foolishness, and we remove that as we allow Him to transform us by His Word. What customs are new in our lives? I'm really pastoring this afternoon. If you don't attend here regularly, just relax, okay? I'm acting like somebody who's responsible for the people who are listening. Since I've started following Christ, what customs and traditions and rituals have changed in my life? People feel like they can receive salvation and a relationship with Jesus and then fit it into their resume and go on with everything else they've been doing in their lives. And it doesn't change their customs. It doesn't change their habits. I had a family tell me one time, you know what, we're not going to be in church on Easter Because for years, our families had a big gathering on Easter. You know, all right, I understand the importance of family. But I also understand the importance of recognizing the resurrection. And can I have family tradition that allows me to also keep resurrection priority? I'm just, is it practical? How does my customs change? How do my customs change? How do my customs change? How do my habits, my rituals, the things that I always do and I've always done and I've always been, are those things conducive to what God wants to do in my life? And if not, why am I hanging on to those? Why am I justifying those? Why am I trying to defend those? Why is there something that rises up in me and says, well, is there a scripture that says I'll go to hell for that? Why why do I do that? I'm sorry, that's just minimal thinking. Tiny, small thinking. I don't mean to be mean, but it is. How am I transforming? Scripture's got to have the highest priority in our lives. Why? Because this changes our minds. 
This changes our thinking. Scripture's got to have the highest priority in our lives. No other knowledge should impact our minds more than Scripture. No other information should drown out Scripture. I understand other knowledge is useful. Other knowledge is valuable in our career and in our lives and taking care of our daily living. Other information is even interesting and enjoyable and we can be a part of that. I'm not against knowledge and I'm not against information, but understand and do hear this. God breathed knowledge has got to be the preeminent thing in our lives. This information has to matter more than anything else. No wonder the psalmist found himself writing things like this. Let my tongue Sing about your word, for all your commands are right. No wonder the psalmist said, I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure. No wonder he said, your word is the source of my hope. He said, the teachings of your word give me light. He says, my heart trembles only at your word. I'm not going to be intimidated by other words. I'm not going to be threatened by other words. I'm not going to be beat down by other words. Only these words strike reverence in my life, strike authority in my life. These words... The psalmist in the same chapter penned, How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. It's a vile world we live in, preacher. I just don't think any kids are going to serve God. Read the book, you'll think different. How can a young person please God? Right here, right here, right here, right here. So Malachi's already memorized over 80 verses in the book of Psalms. I got to church a little early today. Malachi was roaming around like he usually does, hand in pocket, looking sharp. He comes strolling back there where I was sitting before service. and says, yeah, I ain't been in this office in a long time. I said, come on in, pal. He's looking around for changes, you know, anything there. I got to talk to him about Bible quizzing. I had him give me a bunch of the details and the figures and the facts. I said, Malachi, let me tell you something. Pastor's preaching about the Bible today, about Scripture. And Scripture affects our minds. And listen, buddy, I love it that you're quizzing, that you're winning, that you're, it's fun, it's competition, but you listen to me. Years and years from now, what you're memorizing is blessing your life. Way down the road, it's affecting your decisions. He's too young to understand, but he's going to hear it from a little bald preacher. It's going to bless you right now because it changes your mind. When our thinking is changed, we make decisions for God. We, we steer in the right path.
life and when my thinking has been adapted by the word of God, the holy writ that I'm pleased to hold in my hand, then I make more better decisions. I make them more often. I'm able to decide and, and with better choices, I go down better pathways and with better pathways, there's better destinations. I am preaching right now. Come on, look to the word of God. Stand with me in this place right now. The word of God. Most powerful conduit of God's transforming power in black and white. Some people, we get all stirred up in Pentecostal nature and man, the power of the Holy Ghost is amazing. The Holy Ghost is just part of the package. It empowers and inspires and strengthens and encourages me to follow this. Spirit and truth. You know, in that same psalm, the psalmist said this. I used to wander off until you disciplined me. But now, I closely follow your word. Boy, there's a change right there in attitude. I used to just make choices and live life and carry on my human customs and behaviors and traditions. And still I got into a hard place or until the Lord said, hey, let me get your attention. In fact, if you read the Bible, when the Lord got Israel's attention, he sent those enemies to rattle their cage. That they would come back to him. David said, there was a day when I would wander off. Until you grab my attention again. But now. I closely follow your word. Look at this piece of scripture right here. We're about to pray. These are some prayers. In that same psalm he wrote. Turn my eyes. From worthless things. And give me life through your word. Turn my eyes from worthless things. They're not eternal. They don't matter as much. They they might be fine. They might be funny. They might be acceptable. They might be interesting. They might be intriguing. But in eternal speak, they are worthless. Turn my eyes from those and point me. Point me to your word. He prayed, revive me in your word. He prayed, encourage me by your word. You know, we sang a couple of hymns to start out this service and we're going to sing one of them again right now. But both of them had phrases in them about I want your kingdom to come. And many times when we think that, what we're thinking about is his power for deliverance. We're thinking about salvation. 
When we pray your kingdom come, what we're praying is healing, financial security, your kingdom come. We're thinking about salvation and deliverance. But when we pray his kingdom, here's what I'm saying. Your authority. Your dominion. When we pray your kingdom come, I'm saying you call the shots. You set my path. You give me direction. When we pray your kingdom come, I'm saying your scripture, your holy word, I'm surrendered to this. I give myself over to this. Here's where I find my joy. Here's where I find my satisfaction. Here's where I find my eternal peace right here in your word. Your kingdom come. And so if you would like to pray, Lord, take my eyes from any worthless things. Focus my attention anew. Give me life through your word. If you want to pray in a surrendered spirit, your kingdom come as this worship team sings today. I come up here and stand, come up here and kneel, but make room so there's room for everybody. I want you to come to the front and just make a public declaration. I'm, I want his kingdom. I'm, I'm surrendering to his word. I, I hear what you said, preacher. I want my thinking changed. I, I want my understanding manipulated by the word of God. I, I want my decisions to be motivated and directed by him. I, I don't want to wander off anymore until God corrects me. I want to follow that book closely if that's your prayer would you make your way out of a pew and come down an aisle come up around the front would you raise your hands to the Lord and surrender and say I, I give myself Come on, have you've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series tune in next week for the next part of this series or join us online at livingfaithministries.church